Well, good morning. Good to see you. It's uh, it's summer, isn't it? <laughs> it is definitely summer out there. Uh, yeah, boy, it is heating up. Uh, anyway, glad you're here. Uh, my name is Pastor Mike, and especially if this is your very first time, uh, we want to welcome you. A couple things. You've got a, a program you received when you came in that gives you a lot of information about what's going on in the church. I'm not going to do any other announcements, but just kind of read through that. Also want to invite you, if you're a, a new to Rocky Peak, we have once a month at, at our house, Lynn's in my house, we have a, a dessert for new people. And uh, if you're interested in coming to that, it's on a Saturday night, uh, about 7.30, and we just spend uh, some time together getting to know another a little bit about the church and meeting some other new people. Just write a welcome dessert on the back of your card, and we would uh, we'd love to have you over at our place. Now, uh, today we're going to be going through our time of uh, teaching in, in the Gospel of John and, and con, uh, continuing on. So you all ready for that? Yeah. All right, great. Let's, uh, let's pray. Let's jump in. Father, we're thankful for what you're doing here at our church, the way you're waking us up, drawing us on. And it's just exciting, God, for us to see as a church more and more our, our hearts are running after you. You're creating that singleness of heart and action that we'd fear you always, that you might do us good for all the days of our life, not only for us but for our children. And so, God, we, we want to be that church that's running after you, encountering you, meeting you, being changed by you, being used by you to change the world. And so today, Lord, we, we know this is the next step in the journey. Every weekend it's the next step for us. And we don't want to waste one of these weekends. We don't want to waste a day. We want to, we want to get all that there is out of life, all that you have for us. And so we pray that today as we come, that your spirit would speak, that we would listen, and that we would be changed by your voice. So we pray this in your name. Amen. <coughs> Our story starts today in Jerusalem. And uh, it's, it's Passover time, which means it's the spring of the year. And He's about 30 years old, and, and he's been coming to Jerusalem at Passover with his family ever since the time he was a little boy. And this year he's coming, though, not so much as a, a participant, but he's coming as a prophet. And as, as the scene opens, we're, we're watching him. He's, he's walking up the huge steps to the massive temple grounds that were one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. He's watching, walking up those huge steps and going into that temple complex. It's like two football fields on, on a side, so a square we're 200 yards in every, every direction, huge walls surrounding it. And he, he's now he's walking into the entrance and through the big gates, and he passes through the, the huge pillars inside the walls that hold up the stone roof that, that kind of goes around the perimeter of the whole inside of the complex. This is the place where they would meet. And he knows exactly where he's going. He gets his bearings, and he heads towards the southeast corner of this massive temple complex. And there is an area that was known as the Court of the Gentiles. It, it was the only place in the temple where the nations of the world could come to worship the God of Israel. They, they couldn't go any closer to the actual temple itself in the middle than, than the Court of the Gentiles. This was the place where God had said, my house will be a place of prayer for all the nations. And this would be a place where people can come and learn about the living God and whether they want to follow him. And so they had this whole section court for the Gentiles, and yet the religious leaders had prostituted this area. They had, had seen it as an opportunity to make money. And who really cares after all? They're only Gentiles. They're not really Jews. They're not really God's people. And so what if we were to take this area, we were to turn it into kind of like a little Walmart, you know, and uh, we could sell souvenirs. You know, I was there for Passover, you know. Uh, I was there in, uh, in 29 AD, you know, Passover, and get the, I get the t-shirt to prove it. And 
We could sell souvenirs and, hey, we, what if we brought uh, in sacrifices? We could, we could bring in animals. We could bring in like, like doves and we could bring in sheep and goats and we could bring in cattle and we could sell them. We could make, make a deal off of that. And, hey, I know, we, what if we set up like a currency exchange section and so we could, we could uh, then offer to exchange their, their euros and their dollars for, for something we can use here in the temple. And, uh, yeah, this is a great idea. And so sure enough, they, they turned this house of God, this place where it was supposed to be, where heaven and earth connected, where people could come and meet the God of Israel. They turned it into this religious bazaar, kind of a rummage sale atmosphere. And so that's where he was headed. And so, so we watch him. He, he comes through the pillars. He heads to the southeast corner. We're not sure what he's doing. He's going back now amongst the cattle and the sheep and the smell of manure and the urine-soaked hay fills the air. It's, it's getting kind of dank. And, and he's, he's, he picks up a rope, and, and now he's looking around and rummaging and wondering what's he doing now. And he, he finds another rope, and he finds a third rope. And, and now he goes back, and he sits down, and he's beginning to craft them into like a makeshift whip. And we're not sure what's going to happen next. We're getting a little nervous. And all of a sudden, everything we were afraid was going to happen starts happening. As he cuts loose and goes crazy. Today we're continuing a series that we've been in now for the last month. If you're brand new, it's a series called Revealed. You can see by our walls. It's a Revealed God in the Flesh. It's a, it's a story a study of the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth is seen through the eyes of one of his closest companions, perhaps his best friend, the Apostle John. And if you were here last week, we were in chapter 1, and we saw this, or chapter 2, and we, we saw this amazing story as he starts his miracle. It's the very first miracle of Jesus. If you're here, you remember this story. He goes to this wedding in a city named Cana. They run out of wine, major crisis for this young couple getting married. And, and he makes 150 gallons of the finest wine so that the party goes on. And, and we talked about this. What a picture of us, the Messiah coming to Israel, the prophecies that when the Messiah came, that the, the hills would run with, they would drip with new wine. And it, and it was a picture of this marriage of heaven and earth, of God coming to his people. And it's a picture of this life-affirming God who loves us no matter where we've been in our life. And he comes to us in the midst of the crises of our life. He comes to us when the wine runs out, when life has no meaning. He offers to give new meaning, to turn the water of our life into the wine of his presence. This God who just loves us and has come to give us life. And we talked about this, how how Jesus has come to reveal God to us. And we see in the story of Cana, this God who's this life-loving, life-affirming, life-to-the-full God. And that's last week. Well, this week's new week. <laughs> and today we see the flip side of the story. We see the second side of Jesus. It's the Jesus who comes in judgment. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 2. As we go through this passage, we'll start at verse 12 and go through the rest of the chapter. John chapter 2 and verse 12. So after this, uh, in other words, after uh, he turned the water into wine at Cana, he went down to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a, a city 
was a famous city. It was on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, about 16 miles away. He would make it his home base of operations for his ministry. So he goes down there with his mother. Of course, she was with him at the wedding. And his brothers and his disciples, the five disciples who had been with him at the wedding, and they stayed there a few days. Now notice, uh, Jesus had came from a family. And we often think of Jesus as the only child. Uh, but uh, he actually came from a large family. We know he had at least seven kids in his family, of which he was the oldest. He definitely had the first child syndrome. Uh, but we know in, in Mark, it tells us that he had at least four brothers, gives us four names, and he has at least a couple sisters. And so you do the math, and we, we're up to seven, and that, that could have been bigger. So he came from a big family. And so some of these brothers, his mother, his disciples, they moved to Capernaum, which will be his home base. And it tells us that when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish Passover was one of the three big annual feasts of the Jews. It was like their 4th of July. Uh, it celebrated the time when God set them free from slavery in Egypt, and they, they became a nation. So it was like their 4th of July, and it was a big-time celebration. Ancient historians tell us that thousands and thousands, some historians claim hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over the world would come into Jerusalem at this time. And uh, Jesus had been going to Jerusalem for the Passover since the time he was a little boy. Luke tells us that. Every year he'd go to Jerusalem. Uh, and so in the Gospel of John, we're going to see three Passovers. Uh, number one, here at the beginning of his ministry, chapter 2. Second one, we'll see in chapter 6, how he feeds the 5,000. The third one, the final one, we'll see in John chapter 12 when he is arrested and killed later that week. And so this is the first Passover. And so, so he goes to Jerusalem. It's, it's big time. And he's going to go into the temple. Now, uh, to understand this story, we have to understand a little bit about the temple. The, the temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. I mean, it was massive. Uh, it, it truly was one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. It was started by uh, King Herod the Great. And it was started about 15 or 20 years before Jesus was born. And so... Uh, it's been being built now by the time of Jesus at this story, 46 years. And it is massive. Well, what Herod did, he was one of the great builders of the ancient world. And, you know, later in the New Testament, we'll, we'll come across other Herods. They're like a bunch of little Herods running around. Because uh, Herod the Great is the daddy. And he has all these little Herods that run around that show up later on in the story. But he, he's the, he was the daddy. And so uh, he was a tremendous builder. What he did is he took Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where the original temple was, he leveled the top of the mountain. There was valleys around it. He filled them up, and he had quarried from these stone quarries these huge stones to, to create like bricks, to create like a foundation under this thing, the huge big platform. Now, to give you the size of these stones, the typical stone was 15 feet by 4 feet by 4 feet. The biggest stones that archaeologists have found to this day are 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 10 feet deep, and weigh 100 tons. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can see some of these stones. Maybe we'll do that someday. Maybe we'll do that together. But I've been there before. You can go. The Wailing Wall was part of this complex. It was still part of the original. You can go underground in tunnels there, and you can see these huge stones that he built to create this huge mountain, a flat uh, mountain, that's like two football fields on a side, and this huge, tall uh, uh, wall all around it. And so as you'd walk up the big steps to the temple and you come into the, the gates, uh, as you go in through the walls, right inside would be these huge massive pillars, like Roman pillars, holding up this roof that ran around the perimeter of the inside that create these big porches. They call them porticos, 
huge areas for teaching and assemblies and things like that. Now, as you came into the temple area, in the middle of the temple was the actual temple itself. It was 15 stories tall, 15 stories wide. It was made out of a white stone similar to marble that had been polished to a high gloss, covered many areas with gold. So as you approached Jerusalem from a distance, you could see the temple glistening like a snow-capped mountain in the distance. It was awesome. Now, as you came into the temple grounds, you couldn't just go wherever you want. First of all, if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, you couldn't go very far in. You could only go to this one area called the Court of the Gentiles. We'll talk about that later. But as you come in, you know, we often think of temple like going to church. But you don't actually go in the temple. You know, God lives in the temple. Only priests go in the temple at certain times of the year when they're chosen by lot to do incense. Um, you, you don't just go in the temple. So as you come in, the Gentiles can only go a certain fo- uh, fo- uh, ways in. And then there's this like a railing that come to with this, uh, this, uh, this in, in, uh, kind of engraved uh, uh, thing in the stone that says, any Gentiles past this point will be killed. Okay? And this was carried out by the Romans, not just the Jews. The Romans enforced this. And so if you're a Gentile, you can only go in the temple court a little ways. And then beyond that, any Jew could go. And then as you get closer to the temple, now only Jewish men could go. And as you get closer to the temple, only priests could go. And as you get closer inside the temple, only certain priests at certain times of the year. So you kind of get the feel. So there's this one area in the southeast corner that's called the Court of the Gentiles. This is the only place Gentiles can go to learn and to hear and to pray to the God of Israel. This was that part there God had said back in the Old Testament, my house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations. And so this was a place where if you're a non-Jew, you could come and learn about the God of Israel and decide if you wanted to, to become a proselyte and become a follower of God. And so this is the one place where heaven and earth were supposed to meet. It's a connection point. And what the religious leaders had done is they'd seen an opportunity for making a buck. And so what they'd done is they'd taken this area, and it's only for the Gentiles, you know, let's, let's, bring in some, some, let's bring in some sacrifice. Let's bring in the money changers. Let's bring in souvenirs, and, and we can turn a buck. And, and so what they had done is in this place you're supposed to meet God, they turned it into this religious money-making scam. Okay? And so when Jesus comes in that day, he's all business. He's not there for a tourist visit. He's there to make a statement. He comes in as a prophet. And as he comes into that area, he looks for the southeast corner. He goes back. He begins looking for some some rope to make whips. And then he just lets loose. Now, there's certain times in the Bible you just kind of wish you could be there. You know, like David killing Goliath. You know, it would just be awesome. I'd love to be there. Certain times you just want to be there. Like, this is one of the times I would love to see this. Because what you got, you got God going crazy. You've got, you've got violence. You've got... He is taking it to, and this is one guy. Remember, this is Passover. Thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people cramming into Jerusalem for Passover. This place has got to be packed. And yet one man is going to drive them all out. He creates a a whip. He's like a cowboy uh, driving cattle. And he is just like, he is driving everything. He's flipping over money changers tables. He's turning up things. He is like... He is a dynamo. He is, he, he's like a tornado. He's a one-man wrecking crew. And I just love to see this. Just to love to see him go crazy. 
because he's so upset that these religious leaders have taken a place that's supposed to be a place where heaven meets earth, and they've turned it into a money-making scheme. We're going to see this, that God just hates anything that gets in the way of relationship, and he hates religion when it gets in the way. And so he says here that he went to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts, verse 14, he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging the money. And so he, he makes a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area. He's going crazy. Both sheep and cattle, he's scattering the coins of the money changers. He's overturning their tables. And, man, if you were, if you were selling doves that day, it was a bad day to be a dove salesman. You know, like I'm not sure why he picked on the dove salesman. But maybe it's because they sold to the poor. But, um, but he says, uh, to, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? I mean, can you see him? He is just letting loose. And he is cleaning house. And so his disciples remembered. I don't think they remembered at the time. They weren't that bright. But years later, I saw my, my hunch they remembered, that it's written in, the, in this Psalm 69. It's a quote in the Old Testament, the Messiah, that zeal for your house will consume me. Just a passion for your house. A passion that, that this house is a house of prayer for all the nations where we meet with God. Jesus was passionate about our relationship with him. And he is just hates anything that gets in the way. And so they said, zeal for your house will consume me. And they just see it. What does it look like to be a man set on fire, on passion, with zeal for, for our relationship with God? Well, there it is. You see him in action. And it's interesting because literally this will come true later. The zeal for God's house will consume him. It will, will lead to his death. In fact, let me do a little sidebar here. If you were to read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have a description similar to this event of a, a cleansing of the temple. The interesting thing is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all put it at the end of Jesus' life. The last week of his life is the third Passover. That last week he does this. It's one of the events that precipitates his death, this conflict with the religious authority. John puts it at the very beginning of his ministry. Now, some scholars believe that these are the same event, but that John just puts it at the beginning of his ministry for topical reasons which may be true because sometimes gospel writers will group events by topic rather than by chronology. But other scholars believe, no, we think these are two separate events because there are actually some differences, if you read them carefully, between the two events. Um, and and uh, Jesus, like one of those differences is that Jesus actually says different things. Here he says to the dove dealers, uh, how dare you, you're turning my father's house into a market. In the other accounts, in these other events, uh, he says, uh, my, my father's house will be house, called the house of prayer for all the nations. And you have turned it into a den of robbers. Okay? And, and so these other scholars will believe these are actually two events. I tend to go that way. I think it's two separate. As I read John's gospel, it seems like he's really telling us this first Passover this happened. And so what I think is going on is that at the start of his ministry, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to let them know there is a new sheriff in town. Right? It's a new day. It's a new age. And he fires a warning shot over the bow of the religious leader's life and says, hey, it's time to clean up your act. He comes back three years later after they haven't responded. He sends a final warning shot that leads to his death. 
But, but, but however you look at it, whether it's one or two, I think the point is the same. The point is that they've taken this place of connection, of relationship with God, they've turned it into a religious rummage sale, and they've turned it into a market. They've, they've, they've kind of put obstacles in the way of people coming to God, and he's really upset about it. So anyway, in verse 18, the Jews demand of him, that's the Jewish leaders, uh, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Like, like, hey, what gives you the right? You're acting like you're a prophet or something. Like, show us your prophet credentials. Uh, do a miracle. You know, throw your rod down. Like, make, make a snake. You know, do something. And, and so Jesus says something really strange here that was, goes right over their head. He says, okay, destroy this temple. Now, this is why you need a picture of the temple. <laughs> Huge. Massive. It would take years for an army to destroy this temple. He says, here's your sign. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Both sides seem impossible to them. What they didn't realize was that he wasn't talking about the physical temple, this, this place where you'd meet God, where God would dwell. He's talking about the temple of his body. Because, you see, what, remember what we learned back in John chapter 1 and verse 14 the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. See, God has come in the body. That God has come in flesh. Is that the temple has come clear. It's no longer the temple in Jerusalem where God will meet. It's in Jesus' life we will meet God. He is, his body is the temple. And so what he says to him is, you want a sign that I have the authority to do this? Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. That's the ultimate sign that I have the authority to speak on these issues is that I will rise from the dead. And, of course, that's exactly what would happen. They would destroy the, his body, and he would raise it in three days. Of course, this all goes over their head. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Jesus doesn't seem to mind that. He's all through the Gospel of John. Things go over people's heads. It's like, whatever. You'll get it later. Okay, verse 21. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. And so after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Like later on, he's, after his resurrection, it's like, oh, yeah, remember what Jesus said? Remember at the start of his ministry, he said he was going to die. And you're like, wow, that's really cool. He knew then what was going to happen to him. And so it says they, they recalled and they believed in the Scripture, the Old Testament, about the prophecies about the Messiah dying and rising from the dead and they, the words that Jesus had spoken. So it gave him new confidence in Jesus. Now, while he was at Jerusalem at Passover feast, Remember, Passover feast was an eight-day party, eight-day feast. Uh, started the first day was Passover, then seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's actually an eight-day feast. And so uh, while he was there uh, at Passover, um, it says many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing. So apparently he was doing some miracles, uh, some healings, and they, they believed in his name. Now, they believed in a kind of superficial way. Uh, it wasn't like they really bought into Jesus and follow, but but kind of, hey, we'll vote for you, we're, we're pro-Jesus, you know, we'll have the bumper sticker, something like that. And they're not really following him, as we'll see that uh, Jesus would not, in verse 25 and 24, Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. He knew human nature. As we'll see through the Gospel of John, there's a lot of looky-loos, a lot of people who follow him for a while, and then later on will quit following. And he kind of, he, he knows that about human nature. So he doesn't really entrust himself to them. Interesting, in the Greek, what it literally says is that they believed in him, but he did not believe in them. 
And so in verse 25, it says, He did not need man's testimony about man, about human nature, for he knew what was in a man. And so, and so we have this amazing story of this Jesus coming to Jerusalem, warning shot over the bow, the wrath of God, hey, clean up your act or judgment is coming. Now, in the time that we have together today, uh, I want to focus on a couple just powerful truths about who God is, about who we are, and how our relationship with him works as Christ followers. There in your note sheet, you have a section called Jesus and Judgment, the two sides of God. And so I just want to unpack this, all right? I think the first thing I learned from this story, this event, is that Jesus has two sides to him. Uh, He's both tough and tender. The first thing that jumps up, uh, kind of two sides to Jesus, two sides to God as he reveals God, um, that he's both tough and tender. Now, if you were here last week, we we saw the tender side of Jesus, didn't we? Uh, We saw him walking into this wedding in Cana, a crisis moment. They've run out of wine. Jesus creates 150 gallons of wine to meet the need. The party's on. Uh, It's Messiah time. That uh, uh, Jesus, has, the Messiah has come. The Old Testament prophecies are beginning to be fulfilled. The hills are starting to drip with wine. The great wedding is approaching, the he- wedding of heaven and earth. And, and so there's this picture of this life-affirming God who is for us and not against us, who is always looking out for our best needs, who comes to us regardless of where we've been in life, doesn't care what we've done or what we've, how we've messed up. He just loves us. He wants to give us life. That's what he's about. So last week we saw the tender side of Jesus. Okay? Today we see the other side. Right? And this is the side of judgment. The side of Jesus that says, I have come to be the light of the world. If you choose to follow me, you'll have the light of life. But if you don't, if you embrace the darkness, I'll bring judgment into your life. And I want you to see this as it unpacks in the Gospel of John. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the next chapter, to John chapter 3 and verse 17. And and in this passage, this next chapter, uh, we're going to see this theme begin to unfold more. Um, Next week, we're going to begin to go into John chapter 3. We're going to spend three weeks in John chapter 3. And the first two are going to be on this very famous conversation. It's it's probably the most famous conversation in the history of the world, frankly. Uh, between Jesus and one of the religious leaders of Jerusalem, one of the top teachers of the day, kind of a PhD. Jesus calls him the teacher of of Israel. Uh, One of the top teachers, a a man named Nicodemus, on how our relationship with God works, uh, what it requires, how God works it, and so on. So we're going to spend a couple weeks on that. And one of the things that Jesus is going to say in that conversation is he's going to explain to Nicodemus that the reason that he's come is to die. The reason he's come is to die so that he might give us life. So his mission is tied up in his death. And, uh, and, and then Jesus and John, Jesus and John the Apostle, they combine. Scholars disagree on who's really speaking at this point. I know your red-letter Bibles act like it's, uh, like it's already settled, but it's really not. Um, they can't change the red-letter Bible because then people think they just lost Jesus and they know him by the Bible. But anyway, um, uh, there's this, what, what happens in this conversation is Jesus or John, we'll talk about that more when we get there. But they explain that here's the deal, that, that God loves the world. Here's the big picture. God loves the world so much that he's given his son 
so that everyone who believes in him, who buys into him, who follows him, remember that's what believe means, um, will, will have life both now and forever. And so after he explains this, then John the Apostle comments in verse 17. And I want you to see what he says, John 3, 17. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Uh, He says, big picture, uh, God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. Um, Is this world a fallen place? Yes. Are we a fallen race? Yes. Are we the darkened planet? Yes. Are we a a planet in rebellion? Have we all rejected God and gone away? Yes. But in spite of that, when Jesus came, he did not come to condemn. He came to rescue. That's his mission. Uh, It's kind of like we're on the Titanic. He's he's come with a lifeboat. It's like we've got the disease. He's got the vaccine. He's come to rescue. That's why he's come. He's not coming to put up a sign on our lives that says condemned, shut it down. He's coming to rescue. So in 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why he came. But to save the world through him. That's why he came. So whoever believes in him, right? you give your life to Christ, you're going to follow Christ. It says whoever believes in him is not condemned. In other words, the moment a man or a woman decides to follow Jesus Christ and buys into him and gives him a life, at that very moment, they pass from death to life. At that very moment, they, there's a change in their relationship with God. They're no longer condemned. They're not condemned. That we have been forgiven. You don't have to wait until you get to the end of your life and meet God to find out, are you in or are you out? You can know that here. You can know it now. You can cross from death to life here and now. Okay, so, so the moment we believe, we're no longer condemned. Okay, so that is what I'm calling the tender side of God. This God who loves us, has come to give us life, doesn't care what you've done, where you've come from. Though you've rejected him, he's not rejected you. He loves you, he's come to give you. That's the tender side of God. Are you with me? Okay, now we're going to see the other side of the story, the tough side of the story. But whoever does not believe stands what? Condemned already. Let's read it again. Whoever does not believe stands what? Condemned. Can we say that one more time? Condemned. It's good for us to read that because we don't like that word in our culture. Here's the flip side. They, they, they're condemned already. Like you don't have to wait to the end of your life to find out how you done. You're done. You're condemned already. Now. Why? Because you're evil? Because you've rejected God? Because is that why? No. Those things are true, but that's not why you're condemned. The reason you're condemned, he says, is because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. God sent the rescue boat, and you refused to get on. He sent the vaccine, you refused to take it. You're condemned not because of what you've done, it's because what you refuse to do. You see, you refuse to take the injection. You refuse to get on the boat. Now, why would anyone in their right mind refuse this offer? Well, he explains it to us. He says, this is the verdict, verse 19. So you're condemned. You're standing before the judge of all the earth. Okay, you're condemned. What's the verdict? Is the verdict 
hey, that you're an evil person, you've done wrong. No, that's not the verdict. It might be true, but it's not the verdict. The verdict is that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Here's the verdict. In the Gospel of John and in the Bible, light stands for all that's good and right and true. And here's the verdict, is that Jesus has come, the light of the world, to show us a path to life. He says, but part of this is you have to leave the darkness. If you're going to be my follower, you have to get off the ship. It's like you're on the Titanic. It's going down. And if you're going to follow me, you've got to leave the Titanic. You've got to follow me. You've got to get off that boat. You've got to leave the darkness. You've got to follow the light. He says, the verdict is, is that people would rather party on the Titanic because the deeds are evil and because they don't want to let go of the darkness. And so Jesus says, I've come to rescue the world. If you refuse to be rescued, it's going down because I'm going to destroy this place because it's evil. If you refuse to get off, you're going down with it. Okay? And so this is kind of how John summarizes the whole mission of Jesus. He's come to lead us in the path of life. He's come to lead us to a whole new life. But if we refuse and embrace the darkness, we will be condemned. And so what we have in these opening two stories in chapter 2 of the ministry of Jesus is we've got the story of the God who is love, the life-affirming God who's come to give us life. But we also have the story of the God who is light. And then if we refuse the light, we will be destroyed. Just like with the whip in the, in, the, in the temple. You follow me in this? So God's got these two sides. Jesus has the two sides. The tough side, the tender side, and the tough side. Now, here's the problem. We live in a culture today that wants to embrace the tender side of Jesus, but reject the tough side of Jesus. You see, it's really interesting. Like, we live in a culture today that our view of God, by and light as a culture, is the God Jesus portrayed as the God of love. Uh, In fact, it's like God's always for you. He's never against you. You can do pretty much whatever. You're still getting in. In fact, if you go to a funeral, everyone gets in, right? It's very much our our culture. And the funny thing is, is we've taken this view. You know where our culture, you know where we've gotten this view of God from? We got it from the Bible. If you go to other cultures, they don't have this view of God that God is love. They don't have that. I was listening to a documentary the other day about these blind children uh, in Thailand. And blind children in Thailand are treated like they're morons. They're, they're spit upon. They're made fun of. They're hit. They're, why? Because in Thailand, they believe in reincarnation. That you, The reason you're blind is because you blew it in another life. So you deserve our hatred. You deserve our mocking. You see, what you believe about God eventually moves out in your culture. And so how did we as a culture in the Western world, and especially in the United States, why do we believe in this God who's always for us? Uh, it doesn't matter what we, because we got it from the Bible, God of love. But what's happened as a culture is we've forgotten that he's a God of light. All that's right and good and true. And, and here's the danger for us as Christ followers. We can get infected by this, and so we begin to think this way too. And I think what this passage is, is like driving down for us is this very powerful truth that if you're a Christ follower, at the core of what it means to be a Christ follower is leaving the darkness. You see, it's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and to hold on to the dark side. We've got to leave it. 
And that's what these two, these two stories, kind of illust- these two events illustrate uh, for us so, so powerfully. And, and see, there's, gonna be, there's always going to be people who say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. You know, I, I believe in him, but I still live on the dark side. Well, you're like these people in Jerusalem that believed in Jesus, but he didn't entrust himself. You see? Believing at the core, being a Christ follower, means leaving the darkness. Now, uh, once you catch on to this, that God has two sides, the tough side, the tender side, you see it all through Scripture. You see it all through the New Testament. For example, John will write in 1 John, he'll say, um, if anyone claims to know God but walks in darkness, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Uh, it's all through the New Testament. Um, I want to show you one passage in particular that kind of spells this out really clear. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, the church of Corinth had come out of a very pagan background. They're a wild, wild living group in Corinth. And so they come to Jesus. They've been baptized. uh, They started going to church, and their lives started changing. But there were some people in the church who didn't really get it. They, they seemed to think you could believe in Jesus and still embrace the darkness. And so Paul writes, and he's really upset with them. He says, hey, what's going on? Like in your church, like you've got sexual immorality going on in your church. You're, you're living with one another. You're, you're, you're sleeping with people you're not married to. You've got sexual immorality going on. And, and as a church, you're, you're acting as if it's no big deal. You're kind of winking at that. You know it's happening in your church. You're just kind of not dealing with it. He says, you're taking each other to court. You're ripping yourself off, ripping each other off in business deals with fraud. And like, what is with this? He said, you seem to think that you can believe in Jesus and still pursue darkness. That doesn't work that way. He says, if you're going to live a wicked lifestyle, take it to the bank. You're not in. You're not a follower of Jesus. You're not going to heaven. You're not part of his kingdom. Well, but I, I feel this connection with God, you know. Well, I don't care. Well, I've been baptized. Too bad. Oh, but during worship, I sense his presence. Okay, but you're not getting in, you know. So let's see what he says. Verse 9. Do you not know that the what? The wicked. Let's read it again. Do you not know that the what? The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, let's be clear in it. It's kind of bottom line principle. If you're living a wicked lifestyle, he's not, 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 we're not talking about falling into sin and repentance and getting out of it. I'm talking about someone who is pursuing sin, refusing to get out of it, and even defending it. Oh, it's not that bad, or we got to work out. Or, you see what I'm saying? He says, don't fool yourself. In fact, he goes on and he says, uh, do not be, what? Deceived. Now, when the Bible says don't be deceived, it's warning us that it's possible. That we're in dangerous territory. It says, don't be deceived. It's possible to be deceived in this area. And he says, okay, so what do you mean by wicked? Well, let's give you some illustrations. Neither the sexually immoral. Okay, so that's sex outside marriage. I'm living with my boyfriend. I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. I'm having an affair. I'm whatever. And he's going to give us some examples in just a minute. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, usually not a big issue for us in the United States, uh, nor adulterers, okay, so we got an example of sexual immorality, nor male prostitutes, some more sex, nor homosexual offenders, more sex, uh, nor thieves, okay, so ripping people off, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, so kind of partiers, you know. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I still go on Friday nights. I still get loaded. 
I think it's okay with him. You know, it's really, it just relaxes me. So mellow. Um, a lot of people there are Christians, really. A lot of us are Christians. We pray afterwards. Um, yeah, we ask for forgiveness first. Then we have prayer time. Um, nor slanderers, so you're kind of tearing off people's, uh, tearing down their reputation. Nor swindlers, kind of another way of fraud. Now, those are some examples. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, can you get much clearer than that? This is the tough side. Right? This is the tough side of God. Hey, don't think you can follow Jesus and remain in darkness. If you are, you're deceived. That's the tough side of God. Now, Paul will say, let's talk about the tender side of God. So what does he say next? He says, and that is what some of you were. Let's read it. And that's what some of you were. He says, I know who you are in Corinth. I started the church there. A lot of you, this is your story. You were sexually immoral. You were male prostitutes. You were homosexual offenders. You were adulterers. You were ripoff artists. You were stealing stuff. You were idolaters. You went to the temple and the worship. You know, like, this is who you were, you see. And so here's the message that God doesn't care who you were. He doesn't care where you've come from. There's nothing that you've ever done that can keep you from coming into his kingdom. It's like he, he cares more where you're going. That's all he cares. He doesn't care where you've been. But to move into your future, you've got to let, the, you gotta let, let go of the darkness. You've got to let go of the dark side. And so he goes on and he says, and that's what some of you were, but you were washed. So Jesus came and washed your life. You were sanctified. You were set apart for him. You were justified or forgiven in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. Now, we won't turn there, but in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, he spells this out even more clearly. And he says, hey, this isn't just an individual thing. As a church, he says, you need to hold each other accountable for this. This is Rocky Peak. You need to hold yourself accountable for this. Like if you have people in your church or your life group that you know they're living in a life of high-handed sin, clear-cut sin like we've just described, and he gives a long list in chapter 5. They're ripping people off. They're sleeping around. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're partying, whatever. He says, if that's going on in your life group, if that's going on in your church, and you just wink at it, you ignore it, like, well, we'll just keep praying for them. It's probably not the best. Hope they come around, you know. Oh, it's really bad. Yeah, wish it wasn't happening. Too bad. Ooh, okay, well, we'll keep praying. He said, if you do that, God will hold your church responsible for that. And he says, here's the bottom line. If someone claims to be a Christ follower, that's the key. Like, if you're here today and you're just checking out Jesus and you're involved in all this stuff, that's between you and God. You know, we're just glad you're here to check out Jesus. But the moment you step over the line and give your life to Christ, you, you come under family rules. You come under family standards. And, and we will hold you accountable. And Paul says, so if someone claims to be a Christ follower and they're pursuing evil, wickedness, and they will not leave it and they will not turn from it, he said, then you have to ask them to be not in your church anymore. They can't be in your church. They can't be in your life group. Why? Because light and darkness can't coexist. And so you either have to leave the sin and keep the fellowship or keep the fellowship and leave the sin, but you can't have light and darkness together. You see? This is the call on the church of Jesus. And so in this picture of John chapter 2, we've got this two sides of Jesus. Remember, remember what John said in John 1.18. No man has ever seen God, but the one and only God who's at the Father's side has come to make him known. And what I told you is every week, 
that we'd be watching Jesus to say, what's God like? You want to know what God like? Look at Jesus. And so what is God like? Well, he's like the Jesus of Cana who's come to give us life. He's also the Jesus of Jerusalem and the temple that says, if we refuse to follow him, there will be judgment. You see? So we have two. Now, let me say this. As Christ followers, we desperately need both sides of Jesus in our life. We need to know both sides because the reality is most of the time, 95% of the time, the reason you're going to follow Jesus is because you love him and trust him that he cares about you, he's looking out for you. But there's that other 5% of times when you're weak or times when you're tempted that you really don't care what Jesus says. And you really don't care what God thinks. You just want to be happy. And you think this thing's going to make you happy. It's not going to make you happy, but you think this thing's going to make you happy. And at those times, it's very much we need to remember that Jesus is a Jesus, not only of Cana, he's a Jesus of the temple. I, I'll tell you what, in my own life, what keeps me on the path of life, 95% of the time, maybe 99% of the time, is the love of God. I trust him. I love him. He has captured my heart. I'm, I will run after him with all my heart and pray to run harder. But I tell you what, there's that 1% of the time when I stay on track because I know if he, if I don't, he will kick my butt. Are, are you with me in this? It is a fear of God that keeps me on the path of life at times. Because I know that as a father, I, as my father, he is not going to let me get any, away with anything. And his discipline can be severe and it can be painful, and I've been there, and I've done that, and I don't want to do that anymore, right? It's kind of like raising kids, you know? Like when my kids were young, uh, we had a great relationship, and I loved them, and I'd do anything for them, and they, they loved me. And 99% of the time, they would ask, do what I asked them to do because of our love relationship. But for the rest of the time, one of the rules of our family is they learned early, don't mess with dad. That when he says no and here's the consequences, that he is serious. And there will be consequences and they will be painful, so painful you don't want to disobey again. Right? And so, and so it helped them to make the right choices in life, you see. And, and so this is what we've got. We've got, we've got Jesus coming to in the two sides, the, the, the God of Cana, the God of the temple. And we need them both to stay on track. Now, number two. The second principle is that Jesus hates religion, but he loves relationship. <laughs> that he, he hates uh, religion. That Jesus um, hates man-made religion, um, but he loves relationships, what he's about. Now, as we've gone through, John, we've already seen this a couple times, that, that Jesus' greatest enemies in his life were the religious leaders. They were the ones that eventually put him to death. Um, and we've seen that in our lives, one of our greatest enemies of spiritual growth is religion, kind of adding man-made rules to our life that suck the life out. And so what we see throughout the Gospel of John and the life of Jesus is that he's always at odds with the religious leaders. You see this conflict throughout his life. And you see it here <coughs> in chapter 2 as he takes a whip to them. And stop and think about this. Jesus never makes a whip, and goes into a bar. Think about this. Jesus never makes a whip and goes into a strip club. 
says, get some clothes on. Right? I, no, no. This is not how he responds with people just kind of super sinners. The one place that Jesus makes a whip is in church. This is what irritated him the most was anyone who would get in the way of people having a real relationship with God. Like there was religiously man-made rules that would kind of put obstacles in the way of people coming to God. And that's what got him just most irritated. And you see this throughout his life, but I want you to look at one passage where it becomes really clear. It's in the last week of his life. It's sort of his, his last stand against these leaders. It's in Matthew 23. And, and earlier that week, on Monday, he had gone into the temple and cleansed the week. It's the last week of his life. He cleansed the temple, rather. And the religious leaders were really put off by this. They ended up killing him partially for that by the end of the week. And in this last stand against the religious leaders, he just lets loose. And you see in this, you see his hatred of man-made religion, of anything that keeps us from having a true relationship with God. And he says in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law. Now, just a hot tip. Whenever Jesus starts a conversation with woe, yeah, you're picking up. Okay, good. Uh, Not a good day. So, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, kind of spiritual leaders, you hypocrites. Now, what makes them so upset? Well, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So, this is, this is what irritates it. Woe to you, because I've come to show you the path to God in a true relationship with God, this new whole movement, this kingdom of God. And I've come to show you, and, and you don't want to go in, and you won't follow me, but it's really irritating is that you are stopping other people from coming to me with all your man-made rules and regulations. Skip down to verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You, You give a tenth of your spices. So in the Old Testament, the Jews were required to give a tenth of their assets and their income every year, a tenth to the Lord. We call it tithing. And these religious leaders took that very seriously, which he's going to commend them for in a minute, by the way. They do it very seriously. They not only tithe uh, on all their, their, their income, they, they tithe on their herb gardens. They took it so seriously. And so he says, you, you tithe, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, kind of in your courts. Mercy. Faithfulness, doing the right thing. He's, he says, you, you're all into this tithing, but you, you've kind of missed the boat on, on the more important things. And this is what religion always does. Religion always majors on the minors and minors on the majors. It, Jesus comes, love God, love people. That's major. See, they, they miss the majors. And it's what religion does. Notice what he says, you should have practiced the latter, the big things, without neglecting the former. So the tithe, that was a good thing. You're good, you tithe, that's awesome. But don't miss the big things. <coughs> you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, you swallow a camel. I remember the first time they heard that. It's very funny. Uh, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. Remember we talked about this last week. They're all into this ritual purity and all these man-made rules about the washings of the cups and so on. But inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You've never allowed God to come in and change your heart. 
care for people. You're into money. You're into stuff. You're into just living the high life. You don't really care about people. Blind Pharisees, 26, first clean the inside of the cup, your life, your dish, and then the outside will also be clean. And, and so Jesus comes to them, and he takes them on, and, and he says, woe to you, you religious people. You've got this man-made religion. You put up obstacles to people coming to true relationship with God. Woe to you. He was at odds. And, and here's the thing. You see, Jesus is always going to come to the temple of our lives, and he's going to try to cleanse us of the man-made religion that gets, us in the, gets in the way of us having true relationship with God. All those wrong images that we've built up over the years, all the wrong teaching, all the man-made rules, and the longer we walk with Jesus, the more freedom we should have in this. But here, here's the danger, and I want you to catch this. That the moment a man or woman decides to follow Jesus, they open themselves up to the inherent danger of becoming religious. That, that the moment you decide to pursue God in your life, you open yourself up to the enemy's attack to make you a religious person. You see, if you're not pursuing God at all, there's no danger of you becoming a self-righteous, religious, no-fun person. Right? You don't have to worry about that. That's one area you don't have to worry about. But the moment you decide to follow Jesus, this becomes an issue. And you watch this as some people become to Christ and they come out pursuing Christ. And then over years, religion beats them down until they become this, this self-absorbed, narrow little person. That is just like the Pharisees. And so as a church, it's so important for us that as we continue this journey, this movement that God is unleashing here, that we are always taking everything we believe about who God is and who Jesus is and about the Christian life, and all, that we always take everything we believe and we run it through the grid of the New Testament and say, is that really what God is after? Or is this a man-made tradition? Is this just something we picked up over the years? It's really not God's agenda. It's really our agenda. You know, uh, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes a statement. It's a great statement. It's there on your note sheet, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. He says, we as apostles, talking about apostles, he says, we demolish arguments. That's our job description. We demolish arguments and every pretension, every false teaching that's pretending to be from God, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That's my job description as an apostle. I go around and I destroy arguments and everything that pretends to be a truth about God that isn't. Isn't that an awesome job description? This is my job. I just tear down things that get in the way of people knowing God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He went into the temple that day and he began tearing down arguments and pretensions. They say that God is like this. He is not like this. I'm cleaning house here because I want you to see what God is like. And throughout his whole life in ministry, Jesus would constantly tear down religious arguments and pretensions that keep, kept people from having real relationship. There you know, she had a famous verse of Jesus. In the context, he's talking about the religious leaders and all these rules and man-made traditions. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened of these man-made rules. He says, and I will give you What? I'll give you rest. I'll give you life as it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be that hard. 
and he says, uh, take my yoke upon you. It's a phrase that the rabbis would often use when you became a student or a disciple. It'd take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus comes into our life. He, he's he's the, the God of Cana who comes to give us life at its fullest. He's also the God that comes to rescue us. And if we refuse to leave the darkness, there's nothing left but condemnation. And so as Christ's followers, we've got to embrace both sides of this. He's come to give us life, but if we're going to follow, it means that we have to leave the darkness. Following Jesus and embracing darkness is not an option for us as individuals or as a church, you see. We've got to leave the darkness behind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these two pictures of yourself that you've given us for your son. And Lord, we want to be a church that runs hard after you, that runs hard in the path of your love and understands this amazing love that you've come to give us life to the fullest. And yet we understand also that that requires that we embrace the God of light and, and that we leave the darkness behind. And so God, we pray you teach us how to be a church, how to be people that embrace both the friendship and the fear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.